questions. So, but today we're going to be looking once again at uh, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. But before we turn our attention to the word of God, let's go to the God who gave us this word. Let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Well, sovereign Lord, I do pray that you would help me now to preach your word aright. As I open up and exposit scripture to your, your little lambs, remind me that I am a man with feet of clay. I cannot hope to interpret it aright without the help of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would make sure that nothing I say goes against what your word actually teaches. Let it not be my opinions that I am sharing with people, but rather the truth of your word. Now, Lord, make us attentive. Help us to read along and to be eager to hear what the apostle, under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, was sharing with the church, not just in Ephesus long ago, but today, tonight, in this place. We know this message was destined and designed for us just as, a, as much as it was for them. Help us, therefore, to take this seriously and hear it as words from our sovereign creator given to us this night. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 11 through 14. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the promised possession, to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Alexei Nikolaevich, or Nikolaevich, I should say, uh, was born, thank you so much, in St. Petersburg, Russia, in 1904. And despite the fact that he was born with hemophilia, the vast majority of the world's uh, inhabitants would have gladly changed places with him. And this is because Alexei was the boy who was supposedly destined to inherit the imperial throne of Russia. His father was Tsar Nicholas II, and he would have uh, inherited the largest empire, or the second, actually, sorry, second largest empire, after that of Her uh, Majesty Queen Victoria at the time, or at that point it would have been her son Edward, I'm so sorry. Uh, but nonetheless, the British Empire was slightly larger. No, actually, it was much larger. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's tell the truth. In any event, he would have inherited a pretty big empire. Um, and that was definitely his father's desire. His parents were desperate to try everything that they could uh, to treat his hemophilia, even turning to uh, the ministrations of a crazy faith healer by the name of Rasputin, uh, a fraud uh, and a huckster who had a lot in common, unfortunately, with the word of faith preachers today. But sadly, uh, Nicholas, his desires to settle his throne upon his son, never came to pass. As you know, there were two great upheavals that occurred when the boy was still in his teen years. The first, of course, was the First World War, and Russia did not do well in the First World War, and that was followed uh, in uh, quick succession 
by what we now know as the Russian Revolution in 1917. Unfortunately, Alexei was taken prisoner by the Bolsheviks and he was murdered on the 17th of July, 1918, at the age of 13 in a cellar room in Yekaterinburg, along with his, uh, or Yekaterinburg, along with his family members. Uh, it was uh, a terrible end for a young boy who had seemed so destined for so much. He had an inheritance that was before him, but one that could not be sealed and one that could not be turned over. I mention this because it should show that all that men can do cannot ensure that an inheritance is settled upon any of those who we would desire to make our heirs. We can try our very hardest, we can set things aside, we can make sure that everything is legally in order, but we cannot order the winds of providence. We cannot stop disasters from occurring, we cannot hold back death, we cannot stop a revolution from interfering with our plans no matter how well laid. So the question might be asked, how is it then, after Paul has spoken about this inheritance with the Christians in Ephesians, how is it then that this inheritance is destined to be settled upon them? He has told them of an inheritance that is amazing beyond our wildest dreams, that of eternal life of the new heavens and the new earth, of uh, an existence in which we are no longer cut off from God, but will instead dwell with him forever. How can this come to pass, though? Could not things occur within our lives to interfere with it? Could we not be cut off from God somehow? Could we not lose this inheritance? Could it not be snatched away from us? Or could we not spurn it, push it aside, and say, no, we want nothing of this? But... What Paul is going to tell us, and what he was telling the Ephesians is, no, this is an inheritance incorruptible. This is an inheritance that cannot be stolen. It cannot be taken away from us. It cannot be lost, because the one who guarantees it to us is not a mere man. He is not even an angel. It is the Lord himself who guarantees this inheritance for his children. Paul, as you will remember, has earlier told the Christians that it was God's plan in the fullness of times to gather all things together in Christ. And now he's talking about how that will happen and who it is who will inherit these wonderful things. Now, not only did God make this plan that includes absolutely everything that takes place in heaven and on earth, and in hell, everything past, present, future, and, and pertaining to everything in existence, everything in creation. That includes believers, unbelievers, angels, devils, physical uh, things, metaphysical things, spiritual things. Everything in existence, all the atoms, everything that God has brought into being, all of it is part of this plan, this providential plan. And Paul has told us that this plan is not something that God is making up as he goes along. It's not a reactive plan. It's not a, well, I was hoping that would work, but it didn't, so here's plan B. Well, plan B seems to be failing. Better switch to plan C. Rather, this is something that God is executing, bringing into being from eternity past. 
And he has said that these are the things that he is doing according to his good pleasure. And all of it is flowing towards this general course that we shall see, that, uh, that of fulfilling his desire to glorify himself, which is the right desire. For, of course, he alone is worthy of all glory and blessing and honor. Now, looking at the text itself, I want to draw your attention to a couple of important pronouns that we read that you may not have noticed. Note that in verse 11, we read this, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, who is this we? Well, Paul makes it clear who the we is. He uh, then says in verse 12 that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Who is this who first trusted in Christ? Well, that's actually a reference to the Jewish Christians. They were the ones who first heard the gospel as it was preached. You remember Paul, uh, rather Peter preached the gospel in Acts chapter 2 to those who were assembled as they had come from around the world, these Jewish Christians, and they were celebrating the Pentecost feast. On that day, the Holy Spirit came to empower the church for the preaching of the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the entire world. But nonetheless, the Jews were the ones who heard it first. There would have been a few Jewish Christians in Ephesus, but primarily the population of the Ephesian church was not Jewish uh, by background. So he is saying that they were the ones who first put their trust and hoped in Christ. The gospel was preached to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And then uh, he goes on to contrast that we with you. Note the you that then occurs later on in the text. In him you, this is verse 13 of chapter 1. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is he talking to? He's talking to those who were formerly Gentiles in the flesh, those who were not born within the Jewish community, those who were not raised, like for instance, Timothy, hearing the uh, gospel message spoken in the Old Testament, speaking of the Messiah who would come, those who were aliens at one time to the covenants, cut off from God, living in paganism, worshiping creations of the hands of men instead of the creator. But he says, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So this is a reference to them. He is going to refer to them in Ephesians 2.17 as well. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. So the idea being that there were the covenant people who had been hearing the Old Testament for uh, promises of salvation for ages and ages and ages. They were the people who were near to God. And then, of course, there were the Gentiles spread throughout the world who were afar off. For through him, we both, he's going to say in Ephesians 2.17, have access by one spirit to the Father. There's a principle here of oneness, although chronologically and in terms of preference, the Jews received the gospel first. It doesn't make them a better class of believer. This is a very important point. 
it doesn't mean that they were in some sense more important than you who were not born racially Jewish, who were not born hearing the gospel preached in the synagogue and so on. He associates them with himself and he says, and this, you've got to understand also how world changing this would have been. The Jews and the Gentiles within even Roman culture were absolutely separated. Now, if you were a worshiper of Artemis and somebody else was a worshiper of Zeus, you would not have considered yourselves to be too different. You both would have been Hellenists, probably, that is uh, Greek speaking. You both would have had common assumptions about the nature of the universe, common language, common dress, common culture, and so on. But the differences between Jews and Gentiles were stark. These people were not pluralists, and they considered the Gentiles unclean. They cut themselves off from them. They didn't do business with them. Uh, they didn't eat with them. The Gentiles never entered into their house. There was this cultural wall and religious wall of separation between them. Paul, as he develops his argument, and he's talking about how in Christ we are all made one, is going to be talking about how that wall has been torn down by the gospel, how they are now part of the same community, once afar off, now brought near, once strangers and aliens, now fellow citizens of the covenant. So the condition of all godly persons, everybody who is saved, says Calvin, is the same with yours. For we who were first called by God owe our acceptance to his eternal election. That's what he's saying. It doesn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. Ultimately, even though we were closer, even though we had the covenants, even though we had the Old Testament, ultimately it was God who called both of us. And it was his intention that we would all be part of the same community. Calvin goes on to say, thus he shows that from first to last, all have obtained salvation by free grace because they have been freely adopted according to eternal election. Now this is critically important today even because there are some who maintain, they have entire ministries where they say we should not be preaching the gospel to Jews because they'll be saved by their racial inheritance. And as we know, the Judaizers, they, they made it clear that they felt that in order to be saved, you had to be a Jew. So they were trying to make the Gentiles into Jewish proselytes and then get them circumcised and make them into Jews so they could become Jewish Christians. What Paul is saying is that's not the case. No man is saved by being an inheritor of Abraham. He may have been given the covenant promises, but those covenant promises are realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only by believing in him that we are adopted into the family. Whether or not we were far off or whether we were close, we still need the same adoption. We still need to be elected and called in due time. Paul makes this point uh, in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It's the gospel that saves, not your religious inheritance. You're not automatically saved. That applies to us today as well, incidentally. You may have been born children of the covenant. You may have been baptized, but unless you close with the Lord Jesus Christ and believe upon him, you will remain strangers. You will remain alienated outside the covenant. It doesn't matter how close you are. Close doesn't cut it. Close is not, you know, what's, what's the, uh, close only counts in horseshoes and grenades, I think is the, uh, is the saying. It certainly doesn't count with salvation. I mean, think of the ark. You could be so close to the ark that you could touch it. I'm talking about Noah's ark, incidentally. 
But when the rain came down, unless you were actually in the ark, it didn't matter. You need to be in Christ. And that can only happen through the gospel. So, the apostle Paul, having in verse 10, declared that the purpose of God is to bring all the subjects of redemption into one harmonious body, is now talking about how that takes place. It's his desire, that is God's desire, that all things should become eventually one in Christ, that new creation, a new people. What's the purpose of that? He tells us again and again, this is a repeated refrain, that all, that all creation might glorify God together. There is something fundamentally wrong, and we need to grasp this with those who are outside of Christ. What is it that they are? They're, they're not adopted. They're not children of God. They're not headed to heaven and so on. But ultimately, the, the biggest problem is that they're not worshiping their creator. Their worship is fundamentally disordered. They worship everything else. Oh my, the, the stupid things that I worship, that I set my heart on, the frail, feeble things that I worshiped prior to coming to Christ. And that's true of all of us outside of Christ. Our worship is fundamentally disordered. Our hearts are set on the wrong thing and we're headed in the wrong direction. Paul says it is God's desire that he would create a people who are fundamentally ordered correctly, who are now worshiping the right person in the right way and that forevermore in one harmonious body, not a divided body, not a body that gnashes and and bites at one another so that we might all glorify God together. So as I said, this is a repudiation of the idea that there are class A and class B believers. It is also something that should repudiate the idea of identity politics within the church, which is being pushed in at ever, on every side in two different ways. First, we have the, the social justice warrior side. We should all feel very bad because of our ethnicity. But brothers and sisters, our ethnicity is not what determines our identity in Christ. In Christ, you remember, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, our demographic uh, status, our economic status, even whether or not we are free or prisoners, whether we are slaves or whoever we are. We can be at the very bottom of a society or the very top, it doesn't matter. In Christ, we are all one, and that is his purpose. So our ethnic identities, they may be interesting. They may determine the kind of foods that we eat, the accents that we have, the way we dress, things like that. But yet they don't determine who we are in Christ. And they don't and should never determine our relationship to the rest of the body of Christ. Just as there is no class A Jewish believer, class B Gentile believer, first class believer, second class believer, that's not the case. There is no first class ethnically diverse believer who is black or Asian or Hispanic or whatever, and then there's the class B bad white believer. And incidentally, I hate that term white as a a catch-all. First off, we aren't. We're pink. Secondly, uh, most of us in any event, and, and secondly... It's just ridiculous to say that, for instance, somebody who was born in England is exactly the same as somebody who was born in Albania merely because of the melanin content that they have in common. 
There are so many differences in this wonderful, diverse world, even between people who look maybe outwardly outside. God built those differences in, but within Christ, we are one. And the idea that we would redivide based on ridiculous political agendas is surely sad, just as sad as dividing based upon bad theology that states that Jews are more important than Gentiles. They may have been first. They may have had that preference in the presentation of the gospel, but in Christ, we're all one. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're all headed to hell without the intervening work of God and with Jesus. We're all on the same highway to hell without Christ. And whether or not we're Jewish or Gentiles, when we get to hell, our condemnation will be the same and it will be just. But in Christ, we all have an equal salvation, an equal inheritance, and it's a wonderful thing. Truly, only Christianity can bring together all of the warring tribes, all of the things that have been divided because of the fall. Only Christ can restore them. Only Christ can make that new creation that we desire to see. And so the gospel becomes an imperative. If we would see men reconciled to men, then men must first be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So we see the glory of God is declared to be the design of the plan of redemption. Everything, everything will work towards that. Now we've addressed the people who are included in his plan. We've talked about the who, and now let's shift. Let's pivot and talk about the how. How is it that this is going to be taking place? He says to them, these Ephesians believers, and to you as well, he says, in him, this is verse 13 I'm reading now, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It is the gospel which, as we read in, or I read in Romans 1.16, is stated to be the power of God unto salvation. It is not arbitrary. It is not that some people are elect and you can't tell the difference between them and the, uh, and the reprobate. They just they walk along and it just happens to be the case that one goes to heaven and one doesn't. No, what divides them? The gospel divides them and their belief in it. Whether or not they, they are brought to faith, whether or not we see manifested within them the works of the Spirit, God's grace working in those people. But it simply is not possible that people would be saved without the gospel doing its work. That gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, he says it was by hearing the gospel that these Gentiles were brought to be partakers of the inheritance of God. And just as it was the preaching of the gospel that Paul did in Ephesus and before that in places like Corinth that had brought people into the kingdom of God as it was accompanied with the Holy Spirit's power changing their hearts, regenerating them, bringing them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So too now in this day, men are saved and women are saved and children are saved and everybody who is ever going to be saved will be saved through the gospel. And what is this gospel? It is, as he says in verse 13, it is the word of truth. It is not truth in general, note this. He says in verse 13, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. There are things that are true that are not saving. There are moral messages that are true, but yet they will not get us to heaven. There are patterns of behavior 
that are generally, they're in keeping with, with, you know, what God said. And we need to remember this, brothers and sisters, because there have been attempts, of course, in history to denude the, the word of truth, that is God's word of the gospel power. There are men who even cut up the Bible, like Thomas Jefferson, taking out everything supernatural, taking out all reference to the resurrection and the need of, of a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, leaving only the moral elements. All of those things are true, yet they're incomplete. Without the gospel message, men cannot be saved. That is why it is so absolutely useless for, for a preacher to stand up and say, be good, be good, everybody, if we don't have a changed heart. If we have not been impacted by the gospel, we'll fail. We'll fail miserably. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I appreciate the work of uh, the, um, the Tripp brothers very much, Paul and Ted, particularly their child-raising uh, books. Um, I think it's Paul David Tripp actually made the, uh, the point that, uh, you know, um, telling children to be good without preaching the gospel to them, trying to make them moral without, uh, without getting them changed inwardly uh, by that gospel message. Ultimately, it's, a, uh, it's, it's useless. It's like he, they, the, uh, the analogy he made is it's like hanging fruit on a dead tree. You can hang the fruit. You can try to make it look nice on the outside, but ultimately it's, it's still a dead tree. I always make that, uh, I, I always think about that when it comes to Christmas trees. The moment you cut the tree down, it begins to be dead. You know, you bring a dead, dying tree into your house and you, you make it pretty and so on, but eventually all the needles fall off and it shows its true nature. It's dead. Brothers and sisters, it's only if we have that principle of life that we'll be truly good. We'll have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And that's going to be one of the major points that he's going to make. It is the sealing of the Holy Spirit that is so very important. Now, as John Calvin put it, seals give validity both to charters and to testaments. Anciently, they were the principal means by which the writer of a letter could be known. And in short, a seal distinguishes what is true and certain from what is false and spurious. We are like letters from the hands of a king. We are, he takes his signet ring and he puts the wax upon us and then he seals us with the Holy Spirit. And that seal indicated it was not to be opened until a certain time by a certain hand. And if a letter was sealed by the king, it showed it was authentic, it was from him, and also it showed that it was his will, it was his law. He was the one behind it and the power and that no one should interfere with it and so on. Now, Charles Hodge makes some wonderful points. I, I hope you'll uh, at least, you know, maybe take them down, or, uh, but certainly pay attention. Hodge wrote, there are several purposes for which a seal is used. He said, one, to authenticate or confirm as genuine and true. Secondly, to mark as one's property. And third, to render secure. And then he goes on to say this. It's an extended quote, but it is so worthy. Uh, In all these senses, believers are sealed. They are authenticated as the true children of God. They have the witness within themselves. They are thus assured of their reconciliation and acceptance. They are moreover marked as belonging to God. That is, they are indicated to others by the seal impressed upon them as his chosen ones. And thirdly, they are sealed unto salvation, i.e., they are rendered certain of being saved. The sealing of God secures their safety. Thus, believers are said, 
uh, in Ephesians 4.30, to be sealed unto the day of redemption. And in 2 Corinthians 1.21, the apostle says, Now he which established us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God who also hath sealed us and given us the earnest of his spirit in our hearts. The sealing then of which this passage speaks answers all these ends. It assures us of the favor of God. It indicates those who belong to him and it renders their salvation certain. It's not a mere wax seal that men put on documents that, uh, that makes sure that our salvation is secured, brothers and sisters. It is the sealing, as Paul tells us here, of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit himself, whom the Lord had promised, you remember, during his ministry. And before that, through the prophets, this was a promise that God had made. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, not just on individuals within Israel for his purposes, but rather that as the gospel went forth to the world, it would be by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, empowering the church, sealing believers. Now, this Spirit is therefore the guarantee of our inheritance. He is the down payment. So when, for instance, and Paul is making an analogy, they they had down payments and guarantees back here as well. When you wanted, for instance, to purchase a property to indicate that you were going to buy it, you would enter into a contract and then you would put down an amount of money and then you would seal the document. And then the day would come that had been announced and you would pay the full price for the property and it would become yours. But once you had entered into that contract, once it was sealed, that property was in a very real sense yours already. And the Holy Spirit given to us is the earnest of our inheritance. It is an absolutely sure earnest though. It is something that will come to pass. It is a pledge given by God that we who have received the Holy Spirit will inherit all of the things that come in. Now here, we don't have the fullness of our inheritance. We have the down payment of our inheritance. We have some uh, foretaste of the glory that is to come. We get here on earth, don't we? We get glimmers and and a, a taste, a foreshadowing of the glory that's to come. In the fellowship, for instance, that we enjoy here as we come to the table, we're foreshadowing the wedding supper of the Lamb as we commune together and we, uh, we break bread in one another's houses and we enjoy fellowship together. What are we getting? We're getting a foretaste of what it's going to be like with the perfect communion in heaven. Here we have kind of the earnest, the pledge, the, uh, the, I don't know, previews of coming attractions. But what is to come is so much better and it will be visited upon you. You have that earnest. The Lord says, I who have begun a good work in you will not let you go. I am the author and the finisher of your salvation. I am the one who will make sure that you persevere to the end, that you will never be let go is what God is telling you. And he sets you apart from the world. He says, these are mine. These are my children. That is why only believers are supposed to be coming to the Lord's table those who have been set aside, those who have entered into the family of God, those who are the adopted, those who were called and sealed and who are looking forward to everything that that table points towards ultimately and depending upon everything that it tells us about, the the body of Christ given for you, the blood that was poured out to wash away your sins. You are the people for whom this is designed. And what is God reminding you of? He's reminding you of the fact that he has saved you. 
and he is sanctifying you. And the day will come when, although you may not see it, you will have the fullness of everything that he has promised. You are his children. You are his beloved. He was planning these things in eternity past, and he's not going to change his mind. He doesn't change. He's immutable. He is the Lord. He changes not. So when you have received the Spirit of God, when you see those changes taking place within you, that should be the cause of great assurance given to you that that which the Lord has begun in you, he's going to finish. And we need that, don't we? Because we're so weak and we struggle and we doubt. Will this come to pass? You can be a great Christian and still have these struggling doubts. Did not John the Baptist send his own followers to Christ? Are you the one to come? Or should we expect another? Because I don't know about you, but I'm in Herod's dungeon. And nothing appears to have changed. Is, Is it true? And then the Lord assured him. He showed him the tokens that he was who he said he was. He, in essence, showed him his signet ring. (laughs) Are I the king? Didn't the prophet say that when the Messiah came, he would open the eyes of the blind? And haven't I done that? He gave that assurance. We need those reminders. Reminders like tonight, when the Lord comes to you. And I don't mean you generally. I mean you in these seats who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this day. He comes and he gives you his assurance that his inheritance will be settled upon you in its fullness and not as some sort of inheritance be. It's not like you're being promised a timeshare and you get there and this, oh, this isn't what I expected. Oh yeah, you didn't pay for the upgrade. You're not the the type A timeshare person. You're unfortunately the plan B timeshare. That's not what it's like, brothers and sisters. You will obtain all of the things that Christ has promised. One of the places where the prophet, or rather, I'm sorry, the apostle Paul sums this up so beautifully is in Romans 8. I would encourage you to turn back in your Bibles to Romans 8 at this point in time. And I want to read first Romans 8.23, talking about what is what we're looking forward to. He says this in verse 23. Now, I'm going to go back to verse 22. This is the state of all of creation, the entire universe, prior to the return of Christ. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We're looking forward to the fullness of things. We're looking forward to a body made new, one that's no longer afflicted by sickness or age or all of those things that happen to us. And he makes this promise in verse 28. Go ahead and skip down. Starting in verse 28, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul has explained in Ephesians 1 how that can be true because everything that takes place is taking place according to God's plan. And ultimately, even the things that we don't enjoy, the afflictions, the losses, the crosses, all of those things we'll see in eternity, how they were working for our good and for the good of the church generally. He goes on. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We have the chain of salvation, each one following the other. Why? Because God's doing it. He's the one who's bringing this to pass. If you were justified, you will be glorified. What then, he goes on, shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The fullness, the pleroma of our inheritance, all of it will be settled upon us because it was God's good pleasure to do so. And why? For his glory. Now, you have received an inheritance. You may not have the fullness of it yet, but if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have received the seal of your inheritance, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, the Holy Spirit changing you. It is that earnest that makes you an entirely new creation. No longer are you patterned after the first Adam in his fallen state. Now you are patterned after the second Adam the Son of God, who does the will of his Father. And your desire, therefore, should be to glorify God. That's the the highest end of all redemption, the glory of God. It's the highest end of all creation, really, when we think about it. All creation should be singing God's glory. Like the birds awakening in the morning that wake me up. There's one in the bush next to me. I try to remember this is God's creation because I just want to go out and hit the bush sometimes with a broom. But I don't. Because they're singing the glory of their creator. And should we not sing to the glory of our creator as well? So why do we trifle with all the things of the earth? Why do we see it as so important? We set our minds on these things. We desire these things. We want, we want honors. We want preferments. We want all of these things. We desire to come into great inheritances. Or if we're fathers, we desire to settle inheritances upon our children, inheritances that we can't guarantee. No more than Nicholas II could guarantee that his son, Alexei, would gain these things. But there is an inheritance incorruptible that we can all have through the working of Jesus Christ. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if we believe that gospel message, then it is ours. And once we have it, then let us set about the, the process of, of sharing that inheritance that we've been given. Most people are, you know, they keep their inheritances to themselves. We have an inheritance that we are supposed to give to everyone. And this is the amazing thing. Most people want their inheritances to stay with them because they fear that if they give some of it away, they'll have less and then less and then less. But the thing is, when you give away the inheritance that you've been given by God in sharing the gospel, you gain more. It's a wonderful process. You truly grow in grace as you are sharing that gospel. Spurgeon once said to his students, has God called you to preach the gospel? Do not stoop to become a king. It's our great calling to do that, to to share the good news near and far. It's not just me who's supposed to be preaching. Yes, I preach to you. Hopefully I preach the truth. Hopefully you grow in grace. But then you take what you have heard and you share it with the world far and wide. You have access to people I'll never be able to speak to. 
and hopefully God will use you in his plan of redemption in calling them so that they will be partakers also of that great inheritance, that great redemption that God has vouchsafed to all whom he has called to be his own. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you see the, the, the greatness of this inheritance. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not lying when I say I could, I could preach a sermon on every single line in Ephesians because Paul is just so filled with the greatness of God and what he is doing in the world and trying to transmit it to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14 in particular, this just run-on sentence is, is just a wonderful recapitulation of the working that God is doing, bringing all things into one. And so I pray that you will be captivated, you'll be motivated, that your desire will be to share those things with those around you as well. We share such trivialities with people, don't we? But we have the greatest good news that has ever been. We have an inheritance that we can share with people. People will stand outside of stores and ask us for money. If only they knew what we really had. Gold and silver have I none, said the apostles. And then they cured that man through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ who had been begging on the steps of the temple, but more importantly, they shared with him the gospel so that his body was not only cured for a little while to die again and then go to hell, but then rather they gave that great gift of the gospel message. Let's share that with the world, shall we? That they might grow up in grace and know the glory of God as they worship him together with all creation. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you give us that once we have received the down payment, the pledge in the Holy Spirit, that uh, we have nothing to fear. And although we may be anxious for many things, help us to be instead uh, like Mary, sitting at your feet, listening to your word, trusting you always. Lord, we know that there will be tribulations that come into our lives. We remember that after Mary sat at your feet, her brother Lazarus died. But she had that assurance that you could do all things. And truly, you raised him from the dead. Only for a little while then, but we know you'll raise him from the dead and all those who have died in you forever. You'll give them those new bodies, and we look forward to that. May it be the case that we are looking forward always to the finality, the the fullness of our redemption. And may that day come soon. We pray all these things in Jesus.